I'm still waiting for us to gel on this podcast, you know, taking some time, but you need to be patient. You know, we're like the, we're like the, the bulls for Jordan's first seven years. (laughs) (laughs) That's the part that all, all the young, all the young fans forget. And I actually, you know what? I think that's the part that a lot of the old fans forget in their nostalgia for Jordan was. Oh yeah. He wasn't the guy that could get you the championship. He you know, scored that, 50, 60 points every night if he wanted to. But yeah, he was like a, a playoff nobody. Well, not right. nobody. But they always got bounced by the as by the Pistons. and The Celtics beat him. Celtics. One. Yeah. My favorite team, the Celtics. Ah, did like those Celtics. And it wasn't until Phil Jackson and Rodman and Pippen that finally it all gelled. Yeah. Yeah. It took some extra players. You just you can't do it on your own. Sorry. That's the moral of Michael Jordan's story. Can't yeah. do it on your own. Like I didn't grow up watching the NBA, so I didn't ever watch Jordan in his prime, but watching the last dance, that was my takeaway was this guy was a system guy. He needed Jackson. He needed Rodman. He needed Pippen. He couldn't have done wow. it without him. Oh man. Michael Jordan, a system guy. Ouch. <laughs> There's my hot take. <laughs> I use that in my ESPN audition tape. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that, Jake. That seems his championship. We'll just say it this way: to win championships, he needed the system. Hmm. His his talent obviously was there, but until he had the other two in Jackson. No championships. Well, that's an interesting point because, you know, in my in my youth, I was watching Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Yeah. And they didn't need no stinking system. They were good. They they actually transformed their teams. And Michael Jordan might have elevated his team. He, they might have made him a playoff contender. But you're right. You needed some other pieces in play. That's right. I mean, obviously, once they got those pieces, dynamite. But no stopping them, no stopping them. Except if you had could poison some pizza. <laughs> and even then, even then, and even then, it didn't work. <laughs> All right, let's make sure this thing works. just went blank i had something in my head it's a problem you know sometimes stuff just disappears um yeah i'm like i know that it's like i was in the zone talking chatting and then a mischievous little soul unassigned soul just threw a, a ball of ether and knocked me out of the zone yeah it's it's very unfortunate when that happens which didn't turn into a big hulking mass of black sand. Yeah. It, it's appropriate given the context. So actually here's the segue. Pixar's soul. <laughs> and Ma Rainey's black bottom. <laughs> Which no matter how many times I've said it still sounds awkward to say out loud. It, it really does. It really does. 
And we're yeah. going to say it out loud a whole lot on this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. Good old Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. And uh, inside two almost oddly similar films in their own very dissimilar ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oddly similar and yet not at all. Not yeah. at all. They That's both right. Music, right? They both involve music in similar ways and they both involve existential problems, quandaries, if you will, but also in very unique and different ways. Um, they're also vastly different tonally, one being a PG animated film for the whole family and the other being an R-rated period piece about the racist 1920s. <laughs> but, you know, you can't make them exactly the same. There have to be some differences. Well, exactly. There would be calls for lawsuits and the whole bit. And that yeah. would not be good for anybody. No, not. no good. And uh, so in pursuit of uh, in pursuit of tracking down all these Oscar bait films, we've continued our quest by watching a little flick on Netflix called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And then because it's new and it's flashy and it just released on Disney Plus and it also comes from Pixar, we watched Soul. And that's what we're going to be talking about. In addition to our most least important thing, that is the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours. But you know what? It's time to get down in some soul. Paul, did you know that Disney slash Pixar's soul is already ranked on the IMDb top 200 list for movies no. of all time? No way. Yes, just released on Christmas, December 25th, 2020. And three days later is already in the top 200 in its user ranking on IMDb. Of course, the IMDb user ranking, I'm sure, would be biased toward the newest and flashiest uh, productions that there are. I mean, I'm 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 guessing that probably Citizen Kane doesn't necessarily show up, or Stagecoach, or any of those classic classic movies. Or if they do, then they're probably ranked a little bit farther. But you say that, but in the top ten, you've got The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, both from the early 1970s. You've got Twelve Angry Men from the 1950s. Oh, that's great. So. All right, you know, I I stand corrected. And whoever is putting this list together, they're brilliant. Because well, this is the people, is you know, fantastic. This is voted on by the people. I mean, this the the soul has got an eight point two out of ten as voted as an average of over fifty thousand votes already in just three days. That's actually crazy. I mean, I, I would have thought that people would be sort of still getting around to soul, you know. They right. might have watched Wonder Woman when it first came out, and Soul was going to be the next film that they watched. But man, oh man, I tell yeah. you what, I think that Soul is actually the better movie than Wonder Woman. Yeah, 
Well, yeah. I mean, nobody asked that question, but sure. <laughs> I haven't seen Wonder Woman yet, so don't spoil it. Oh, okay. I won't tell you anything about well, it. Well, at least I know now it, for Paul, it's not in the top 200 on IMDb. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm actually as a as an actual movie reviewer, I am now puzzling over my top 10 list for 2020 and yeah. uh, it's really, it's been a strange year. I, I don't exactly know what's going to land on it, but I do think that Soul very well might. Jake, I got to say that just watching Soul made me a little nostalgic for our early days because the director of Soul is this guy named Pete Doctor, who directed one of the very first movies that we ever talked about, Inside Out. Yep. And uh, yeah. So I was thinking a little bit about, I, I, I thought a little bit about Inside Out when I was watching Soul. I thought that Inside Out might not have been the funniest Pixar movie ever made. It was certainly the most ambitious until Soul, which yeah. is amazingly ambitious. I mean, you go from the inner workings of the mind to this existential question of what is life and how to live it well. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty provocative. How, how this stuff passes for kids' entertainment, I do not know. Yeah, my wife and I both looked at each other after the film and said that we kind of realized about I don't know, just a couple of minutes in, just thinking to ourselves, this doesn't feel like a kids' movie, and not that it's not appropriate for kids. You're just like, this has got to be going over most of their heads. Yeah. Yeah, it is crazy. It is crazy ambitious. I mean, it it takes you into the afterlife. It takes you into the before life, more importantly. It takes you into a whole bunch of existential questions and discussions. I actually had a chance to talk with Pete Doctor a little bit about this movie, oddly enough, just to name drop. Um, and he was talking about how it's more of it's more even a ph- philosophical movie than a theological movie. Um, he was talking about how it starts off as this determinism, num- the the soul 22, who's a main character there, sort of dives into nihilism and it sort of goes on and on on sort of unpacking all these, all these different philosophical philosophies, philosophical philosophies. Is that right to say? But- hey, when we're talking about a kid's animated movie tackling Jung, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. And this isn't new to Pete Doctor. Like he didn't Inside Out obviously is a really good example and a good comp for his ambition, but he's also the guy behind Up, which was, you know, probably prior to Inside Out, the most emotionally ambitious film that Pixar had put out. And he also directed Monsters Inc., which I think was one of those even in the early days as Pixar kept surprising us was one of those were like, how is somebody going to take a movie about monsters scaring kids and really make us emotionally connect? I mean, this guy, Pete doctor has been doing this for a while. Um, when you do a deep dive on him, he just started as an animator back in the nineties for Pixar. And now he's a chief creative officer. And now he's put out monsters Inc. He's put out up, he's put out inside out and now soul. This guy has got some stuff to work out. I tell you what, I, I very rarely, uh, this is honest to goodness. I very rarely get excited about talking with anybody because, you know, 
outside you, I really don't like to talk with anybody at all. But I was, I was right on the verge of fanboying on Pete Doctor because the dude has directed before Soul. He directed my two favorite Pixar movies. Up, I think, is one of the all-time top ten classics. I've mentioned it on so many top top five lists that we've done even here. Uh, Inside Out was so provocative and so ambitious and really, really entertaining. Um, I was super excited to see what he would do with Soul because you knew it was going to be ambitious. You knew it was going to be thoughtful. You knew it was going to be funny. And it and it truly was all of those things. Um, just to set up the, the plot a little bit, essentially, it's about this guy named Joe Gardner. He's an old jazz musician, well, middle-aged jazz musician, who uh, has always been waiting for his life to start. He thinks that he is meant to be this great jazz musician. Instead, he's sort of fallen into this role of this middle school music teacher. And he thinks that he's sort of been wasting his life. The day that he gets his shot with a high-powered jazz saxophonist um, named Dorothea Williams, he gets his big shot. He thinks that his life is actually beginning that day, and he immediately falls through a manhole cover. Boom! Boom! Dies, goes to the great beyond. He tries to escape because he's not ready to die yet. He is ready to, to get his life started. He finds himself in what is called the great before. Um, where he meets Soul 22, who, unlike Joe Gardner, who has been waiting for most of his life for his life to actually begin, Soul 22 doesn't want to start life at all. She wants to stay up in the great before because it's nice and comfy and cozy and she doesn't have to worry about failing at life. Um, and that's sort of where we set up. They they go to Earth and find out various things about themselves. And that's a really succinct nutshell to put such an ambitious film inside. <laughs> they find well out done. things about themselves. Well done. Well <laughs> done. You don't even need um, the movie anymore. <laughs> what was that? You don't even need to watch the movie anymore. I've that's right. It all. That's right. Uh, so like springboarding off of that and back to the conversation about this already being ranked in the top 200 of films of all time, according to IMDb users, how do you think soul managed to succeed or fail in its ambition as a movie? This is a really complex question. And, and honestly, I think in some ways, um, I'd almost want to wait a little bit and, and think about it a little bit more to see where it would shake out. From my perspective, the movie definitely succeeds. It succeeds. It takes us into a world that we have not seen before. This is the very first. Joe Gardner is, is, is an African-American musician. This is the first time that we've had a black protagonist in the Pixar universe. Um, it, it tackles this world that was unfamiliar within Pixar's realm, and it does it really well from from what me, a middle-aged white guy, can tell. It just, it just felt very real, very visceral. Um, the music, I thought, was wonderful. The art was incredible. Um, it was a very, very immersive experience. That said... 
because the movie was so ambitious, because you wind up thinking about it so much, I think that for an adult watching it, it doesn't have that that emotional pull that some of the other Pixar movies do. Like, like Up, it deals with a really powerful emotion. It deals with grief and about moving on, right? Those are complex things to deal with. And it's amazing to deal with them well, but they are inherently emotional, right? Um, they immediately pull at your heartstrings and anybody who doesn't cry during the first 10 minutes of Up, they're just dead. They're just dead. This one because the ambition was so great and because they were tackling so many different things, you wound up mulling it more than slipping as much into just the delight of the story. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's the unique challenge of trying to tackle that much and to condense it as tightly as it does trying to take on so much subject matter and such complex subject matter. It's, it's, it does seem to succeed in that regard. It's very watchable. It's worth watching. And yet it's sticking power is yet to be seen in my mind uh, because of that. Like, is this one I'm going to want to revisit or is it one that I'm going to be content saying, yes, I saw that. I feel good about it. And I, I don't need to go back to it. You know, there's some movies that you just, you're compelled to go back because it's fun or the characters were, you feel like good friends or are particularly entertaining. You know, there's all sorts of different reasons we go back and I'm not entirely sure yet. We'll see because sticking factor on a thinking movie like this can sometimes last or come to, uh, rear its head later on right. as you right. continue to think on it. But at first blush for me, it was, I enjoyed that. It made me think, it made me feel. I got where it was going. It was a nicely done story and I'm probably good. Like I wouldn't <laughs> be rushing back to watch it again. Not because it's bad, but just because I've experienced it and it yeah. felt like at first once is enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in an interesting sort of way, I, I totally concur with all of that. I think it, Although I actually wanted to go back and watch it again because some of what I thought the movie was trying to do, I didn't quite grasp on the first fly through. Um, it feels, you know, Soul in some ways is a much more entertaining, funny version of Tenet in, mm. terms of, in terms of how I sort of walked away from it. Like one of the main distinct, distinctions that they were making in Soul was this difference between the spark of life and the purpose of life, right? right? And the movie was trying to say that those aren't necessarily the same thing, but it landed on such an ambiguous note. And because they sort of, they were doing, they were fainting in a lot of different directions when it came to that central premise that it made it less satisfying. That emotional chord, since we're talking about music movies, that emotional chord just wasn't quite as powerful, quite as strong. It felt, maybe it felt in a way like a jazz riff that, that feels a little bit unsettled, a little bit unfinished. Um, That was kind of the way I walked away from this movie. Unlike Up, unlike Inside Out, where you think, oh, I suddenly have a greater understanding of me and the world around me. That didn't, I, I wasn't left with that here but it didn't make me think. Yeah. And 
And it, it's tough for me to think how it could have landed that punch be, uh, and, and still been the film that it tries to be. Because one of the things that's, I think you could say semi-successful, depending on your perspective, unsuccessful at, is it it's threading the needle where it does not want to to give to tip its hat to this is the right way of th- this is the right spiritual or philosophical lens through which to view all of these things it's trying to do something like you said to explore these philosophies without saying this is the specific one this is the right framework to put it in put it in buddhism put it in christianity put it in uh islam you know put it in judaism it's like, it's not saying plop it inside this spiritual framework it's just right. saying Hey, isn't it wonderful to enjoy life as it is? Right. And no matter what you believe, just enjoy life as it is. Right. And that is such a nice but ultimately milk toast place to land. And is and 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 makes you in one way appreciate the ambition that they had even telling this story. Because usually when you want to tell a story, you have to to do a to a movie that's worth watching. You must have a good point. And this one seems like it has a pretty vanilla point, And yet it manages to be an engaging movie anyways. In spite of the fact that it's really trying to tiptoe and dance around giving a prescription as to here's the right framework. Right. Here's the right philosophy. Here's the right spirituality. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it – as you know, I work for a Christian website. That's where I do reviews from. And that the spiritual elements of soul were an interesting minefield for me to walk through as a reviewer, even uh, much less as someone who's trying to make a, a four quadrant movie that really everybody can embrace. I mean, there's there's things in soul that are that are if you would think of it as a spiritual movie would be just heretical. It, they wouldn't be what Christian thought would would really have, but at, to your point, you know, I think that that they were using this this weird theological philosophical construct about the before life and afterlife to really frame what it means to live this life. Yeah, and I get what you're saying as far as it being vanilla, and yet. When I watched the movie, I think the the big emotional chord that it did hit for me was just the joy of life that 22 finds in living. You know, I I think that that's sometimes, and you see this a little bit. Again, these these are all elements that are sort of developed, but not necessarily to to that point that you want them to be. But you see that sort of character, Joe Gardner on the subway, seeing everybody sort of beaten down. It's very gray. It's very gloomy contrasted with 22 who's experiencing life for the first time and sees the joy of eating a a piece of pizza sees the beauty of of watching uh, a a woman stitch up a a suit you know you have these these elements that reminds you that life itself is such a treasure and that is not new ground but for me, it sometimes is a great reminder. It's yeah. a great reminder to be thankful for everything that you're dealing with in the world, you know? Oh, and no disagreement there. Actually, what I was saying was sort of a meant as a backhanded compliment in that, yeah, they're not breaking new ground. 
And yet what they're able to deliver on that premise, on that point, is um, is moving and emotional, even if it's not and, – and is poignant, even if it's not life-shattering or right. changingly so. Um, it's still really nice. And so to take something that has been ground that is well-tread upon and to, to do something new and inventive and original around it and to deliver an emotional – and fun to watch package is no small feat. Like no. that, that's something that's been flubbed more times than it's been yeah. succeeded at. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting when I think about this movie as we talk, it's a weird combination where you feel like it succeeds in terms of like the kid level. It, it succeeds as a good mid-range Pixar movie does. It's super entertaining. It's super fun. There's a lot of really funny parts. And then it has this really rich, this, this whole existential philosophical bent that you feel could be at home in, in a, a philosophy class. You could see someone, you know, a professor taking this to, to philosophy 101 and saying, look, Here's some things to think about. And yet those two sides didn't necessarily mesh in the same way that I felt like an Inside Out did, where it was both really funny and super thought-provoking, and it melded into a masterpiece of storytelling. I don't think that this was exactly a masterpiece. It was still a really good movie, though. Yeah. And I, I wonder how much in terms of it being applicable and coming home for the child viewer has to do with not having a true representation of a child character. Right. You know, 22 is kind of maybe supposed to do that, but sounds like a middle-aged woman and <laughs> As talks like a middle-aged woman, isn't a child, you know, even though the form is a, of the soul is nebulously childlike. And then you're dealing with a you know, up managed to make Carl. So we, it placed him in a context with a child and that created new dynamics and allowed the child viewer, I think, to connect with it in a new way, in a different way. Um, and inside out again, placed it in the context of this child's experience and brain and what she was going through. And you don't get that with, Soul, and I wonder how much that might play a role in whether or not this sticks that much for kids. Yeah, um, is that not only was it that ambitious, it didn't locate the story or the characters in something that was relatable to them. And and again, it's like a weird backhanded compliment, and that they were able to make a movie about a middle aged man with no child character and make it accessible to to kids. My kids sat through the whole thing with me. Even though one of them, the six-year-old at the end was like, well, that was weird. <laughs> but he sat through the whole thing. He didn't wander off. And my kids will do that, you know, or they'll start to whine about how long it is. Like they, they were locked in. And so even though it may, I'm curious to see what its long-term stickiness is, yeah. it did keep them around in what is really kind of an inaccessible package when you think about it for a yeah. kid. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Let me ask you a question, Jake. How much do you think this might have obviously Soul was released on Disney Plus. It didn't get a theatrical release in, in the United States at all. Um for obvious reasons. And I think that Pixar movies tend to hold up well on the small screen. 
But do you think that the power of the story would have been conveyed a little bit better had we seen it in a movie theater? I think from in the sense that the way a movie theater engages your senses differently than a home environment does by cocooning you in darkness, completely drawing all of your attention to the bright screen, the the speakers being loud enough that you can feel them and engage your body that way. Like there are those kind of uh, practical things that I think could lend itself to being stickier in a theater context, but I don't think it requires it. It's not, there's really nothing so huge and bombastic uh, in this so as to require that in my opinion. Now I have to caveat that by saying uh, my, this is, this is a, like going to sound like a humble brag caveat, <laughs> but my family's Christmas present this year, like we kind of did less for individuals and pooled our resources to create a pseudo budget home theater experience in our basement. <laughs> so now I've got like a 4k 100 inch. Ooh projector screen goodness gracious and so it felt pseudo theatrical for us you know even if there were still elements of you can't completely replicate i don't have the surround sound and the booming audio and i'm not in recliner seats like it's very budget which (laughs) is a funny thing to say about a 4k 100 inch projector setup but that could also influence my read on that a little bit Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I I think, I think when I think about soul, if I was going to give a numerical rating, man, I, I, it, it will definitely land on my top 10 for the year. It definitely will. But I am not, I don't think it would land on my top five list for Pixar movies. I just don't think it would. I think both up and inside out would, um, I thought it was more enjoyable than onward which I also thought yeah. was a pretty good movie, but I think that, that soul was better. Um, but I don't think it reaches to the level of the best of the best of Pixar, which I was hoping that it would. I'll, I'll say on that note, it did succeed in so many different ways. Uh, I think I would put it at a, as far as a numerical rating goes at a 7.75, but sure. with the caveat of this does feel like the type of movie that could change in your mind as you think about it. Uh, and so it could it could fluctuate, at, you know, as it sits with you, and and you know sometimes, like with cooking, sometimes the pieces just need to simmer inside with each other for a while before they become better. You know, I, I recently made smoked pork like uh, pork green chili, and when you start to simmer a, a green chili, a pork green chili, it does, and you take a sip of it after twenty minutes, it you're you're going to feel a little bit disappointed. (laughs) It does not taste like what you were hoping it's going to taste like. But after it simmered for eight or nine hours, it's a completely different experience. So is that going to be the case with Soul? I would not be surprised because it is really well done. Yeah, yeah. And and I would go back to to what I had talked about before. I I love that example, but I, I, I can see it as operating a little like jazz. You know, jazz is also ambitious. Sometimes it misses the emotional mark just because it's trying to do so much. And yet the more often you listen, ironically, you know, jazz is sort of this ephemeral thing where you it sounds different every single time it's played live. But I find when I listen to jazz 
on, you know, CD or Spotify or whatnot. Um, you know, the certain pieces I come to appreciate more and more and more as time goes on, just because I can detect everything that they were trying to do, all the little movements that they were doing. And I think that that, that may be the case with soul as well. We'll have to see. So Disney Pixar Soul, it's available on a streaming set-top device near you if you've got Disney Plus or if you know somebody who's nice enough to share. Not that we're condoning breaking any rules. <laughs> Do it the right way. But uh, let us know what you thought if you've already gotten a chance to see it. We're on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But now it's time to feel the rhythm and blues, specifically blues, as we talk about Netflix is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Too many apostrophes, but here we go. <laughs> Contrary to Disney Pixar Souls, massive tally of votes in its first Three days of being released, 50,000 user votes on IMDb. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom came out in uh, about a week before, actually, exactly a week before uh, on Netflix and has only received 10,000 votes on the IMDb from users. So this film would seem to have gotten less public attention than Disney Pixar's Soul. And yet, is it deservedly so, or should it be getting a little bit more attention? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. You know, I think that this movie, as time goes on, as the award season goes on, as our fantasy film contest goes on, we will be hearing more and more about this movie. Because it really does have some amazing performances. I am not surprised that it's not like a huge vote-getter on, on IMDb. Um, as you just mentioned, when we were in commercial break, it's a critics movie. It's not necessarily, you know, one that the masses would flock to and really appreciate. It doesn't have that emotional charge, although it kind of does. Now that I it think does. it does, I just don't think it has the same accessibility feel to it the way Pixar's soul does. You know, Pixar has succeeded so much over these years because they've created this brand of accessibility. You have this trust that almost no matter what subject they tackle, no matter who's directing or voice starring, that it's going to be a film that adults and kids alike can enjoy. And with, you know, differing opinions from the margins, potentially disagreeing, they've succeeded at creating a brand that says, Hey, no matter how old you are and no matter what walks of life you come from and perspectives you come from, you'll probably like the latest Disney Pixar film. You watch the trailer for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it's going to feel more niche. It's going to feel less accessible. It's going to feel like, ah, oh, this is going to appeal to people who like period pieces and jazz mu blues music. <laughs> and if you don't consider yourself one of those people, you might not be turning on an R-rated Netflix original. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it is... A more difficult sell, I would say. This is this uh, is a is a play. Originally started out as a play, written by a August, August. Wilson. Is that August correct? August Wilson. 
Yeah, that to tie this back to interrupt you. Remember where you were at, but to tie this back, I got about 15 20 minutes into this and I just was like this has to be based on a play. I hadn't done my research prior. I was going to wait till after. Like this has to be based on a play. And not only is it based on a play, it's based on an August Wilson play, which one of our very first episodes of the Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All podcast also talked about a newly released and actually the only other uh, theatrically produced yeah. August C. Wilson play, which was Fences with Denzel Washington and also Viola Davis. Viola Davis. Yep. That was one of my favorite movies of the year that it came out. Was that 2016? Is that right? 2016? 2017, I believe. Yeah, that was a fantastic oh, No, you're right. 2016. Yep. See? Don't argue with me, man. I, the, I don't it was just that we talked about it in awards season in 2017. <laughs> so I was also right in that we talked about it in 2017. I want my – I'll take my little bit of credit there. Gotcha. But the thing about – August Wilson's plays is that they have a beautiful, earthy, lyrical quality. I mean, if you're a language lover, you can just get caught up in the language, but it does feel very much like a play. And this particular play is about the titular Ma Rainey. She is an actual blues legend. Um, She sang in the 1920s for the most part, sort of dabbling into the 1930s. And this sort of talks about how she comes to Chicago to record a record. She is um, the cat's meow, as the oldsters might say back in the day. Um, She was very popular. She made the record company a lot of money. And to have a a black woman at that time with that kind of power um, was very unusual. And it makes for some very, very interesting tensions within the recording studio. But there's another source of tension going on here. And that will be the um, Ma Rainey's very, very talented uh, trumpet player who comes in He has some definite thoughts on how some of Ma Rainey's songs could be improved. He has ambitions to start his own band. He wants the world at his feet. And the tension between Ma Rainey and her trumpet player is quite something to behold. Um, It stars Viola Davis, who is always excellent in everything. And this is also the very, very last performance of Chadwick Boseman. So there is definitely a lot of uh, bittersweet performances going on here. When you see Chadwick Boseman doing uh, a, a tour de force performance of, of this, this trumpet player, it's, it's an incredible job. Um, but you know that it's going to be the last time we ever see him in a movie. Yeah, and he seems he's not his Black Panther rippled superhero self. He's noticeably thinner bordering on gaunt in places compared to his black panther superhero physique that many of the popular uh, the general public will be used to seeing chadwick boseman and with the context of him having passed away from a four-year battle with cancer you know it it does kind of lend an extra note of sadness um, when you think that perhaps that what you know that look wasn't just for a role but also was the yeah. deterioration of his body towards the end of his life and yet he brings such an emotional depth to a very um emotionally complex character yeah yeah i couldn't agree more i i think that that um 
it works. His appearance works for the character. I mean, he is gaunt and edgy and, and feels very, um, he feels very charged up, you know, in every scene that we see, he, uh, he is, you know, the young gun for, for the, for Ma Rainey's band, which is mainly populated by these old grizzled veterans who know who pays their checks. Uh, Levy, the trumpet player doesn't, doesn't quite, he, he's not ready to, to kowtow to Ma Rainey like the other ones do. Um, he brags about his abilities. He buys these swanky new shoes that the other band members laugh at. Um, in one of the most compelling scenes of the movie, and I, I will try not to give too much away, but he he rails against he rails against the the injustices that he has experienced in life. We understand where this passion comes from because he saw some terrible things when he was a child. And because of those terrible things, he has a grudge against God, which is truly a fascinating thing to behold in this movie. Yeah, this movie does a really fascinating job of taking on a lot of thematic elements like not in the the rating sense though certainly many of them in the <laughs> motion picture association rating sense but but also in the sense of the emotional things that the characters are dealing with the cultural societal uh, forces that the the story itself and the characters are up against it's really an ambitious film in its own right in that it takes place entirely in pretty almost entirely in one day in Chicago a hot sweaty summer's day in Chicago uh, where you can, I mean, not dissimilar to something like uh, Spike Lee's do the right thing. You can feel the heat you, as you see the sweat, you can almost taste the dust and the sweat combining um, in this story as the characters uh, get worked up and, you know, barrel into one another um, both emotionally and physically. Right. Yeah. And so it's taking on a whole lot because it's taking on the weight of Ma Rainey's context. And as well as this character, Chadwick Boseman's character, Levy's context and combining them to tell their little miniature stories in one day, in a couple of hours, while also tackling like longstanding personal issues and societal racism and the tension between things getting better, but being in the, in the now, but the not yet and still having the scars of what was. And that is, man, it's a lot to try to pack into, you know, a two hour stage play of a movie. It is a lot to pack in. And one of the things that I, that I loved about this movie is that it deals, it packs it in pretty well. I, I, I think that the thing that, that amazed me the most or not amazed me. Um, but the thing that struck me the most was, Obviously, you're dealing with a lot of systematic racism. This takes place in the 19, early, early 1930s. Um, racism was not, it was really, really bad. And it was very systematic. And you can see that in a lot of different angles. But you also see within that context, that broad context, the micro context of how these characters were raised, how they fight against racism, how they deal with the world around them. Um, you find that, that you have this whole tapestry of different philosophies on how to make 
their way in this world that doesn't appreciate their skin color. And, and I think that it's, it's, a, it's a powerful demonstration, I think, of the complexities that are inherent in these issues. I mean, it's, it's a really fantastically well put together film. And I watched the the little 30 minute documentary feature that came that Netflix released alongside of this. And it was interesting to hear, you know, uh, this was produced by Denzel Washington. He was one of the producers on this, um, you know, listen to the director and the actors and actresses talking about, um, you know, what it means to bring a play like this, um, you know, that's, that was written many years ago about a time, many years before that and yet to tell it in a modern context where it still feels applicable the thematic elements that it's wrestling with you know we're at a different point in the tension and yet so many of these similar feeling tensions exist in our culture and feel very apropos to the year that has been 2020 absolutely one of the, one of the coolest elements of this of this film and the stage play um, was Levy and this door that was stuck down in the basement. You know, the, the band is down in the basement trying, and Levy is just obsessed with this door that's stuck. He tries it just gently at first. As the movie goes on, he tries it more and more and more harshly because he he feels like this door should open. And you know that the door is symbolic for, for just trying to break the, the door that, that Levy is trying to break through in his musical life as well. He finally breaks through and he finds himself in this shaft of brick. There's no way out. The door leads literally to nowhere. And I thought that that was a really powerful metaphor. And, and, and the movie is really filled with moments like that, that, that illustrate, I think, some very interesting points. Yeah. I mean, even if you consider yeah, him breaking through into this enclosed trapped space and yet there's a bit of fresh air there's a bit of blue sky there's that tension of the speaking of you (laughs) what's that (laughs) very optimistic i i'm impressed i go for the brick and you go for the light the this the light above well because that feels that felt to me like the tension of the film you know the conversation that ma rainey has with the old one of the older band members cutler the conversation about why she chooses to act the way she does around these recording sessions, being very strong willed and demanding of, you know, the white producer and manager that she's working with. And as, as that conversation, I thought, uh, you know, provided, you know, really helpful and poetic context to the poetic imagery of Levy trying to rail against you know, the pain of his past, the hope of his future, the frustration of the here and now where some of it's good. He's got these new shoes and, and, and he's got his, his ambitions and some of it's bad because he's being held back by all, by all these things. And then to break through and still be in a, that place of I'm trapped, I can't go anywhere. And yet I see that which I'm hopeful for and I see that which I'm optimistic for and it's not that far away and yet I can't get there. And Ma Rainey is, you know, in her own version, she's saying, you know, I, I act this way as I scrape and claw to hold on to this breath of fresh air that I have because I realize that it's a very short and small window that I'm given. And if I don't leverage it the right way, I won't get anything that I want. And and then to the symbolism point, even the name, of course, we know Ma Rainey is what she was called, but the decision of uh, August Wilson, the playwright, to name 
this character levy and you think about the rain and the water pushing against the levy and the way that that culminates you know what happens when too much rain is pushing on the water and what happens to the levees like there's so much symbolism even in that in the way the story ends that is great jake i i do have to say that is pretty good um yeah i i, I think that that it's powerful when you see these characters walking through these issues. And one of the things that, that struck me about, about the Ma Rainey character, who we haven't really talked about, and, and is sort of a supporting character, actually, right. within the whole proceedings. Um, but she talks about how she knows. I, I was struck by how savvy she was. She knows that they appreciate her, that she is able to call the shots only because of her voice. They don't care about who she is. They don't care about anything about her at all except for her voice. And while she has her voice, she is going to use that to the nth degree to get what she feels she wants and deserves. And uh, it's it's a it's a great play. It's a great play. I think that um, I it, you inevitably when you, we talked about fences earlier on, you inevitably sort of want to compare the two. How do you think this compares to fences? As far as comparisons go, both are managed to take really jarring subject matter. I mean, both fences and. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom involve characters who have these really traumatic uh, experiences and stories in their past and manages to make you both recoil at some of their character traits that are really undesirable and also yet your heart just want to break with with the pain that they're carrying. And I think the 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 emotional tension that August Wilson as a writer is able to to get in the dialogues and the monologues that he has in both Fences and uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom feel very similar for the skill and sort of the poetry with which he tight ropes that line of these characters that you're like boy well in Fences man you you really don't want to like Denzel Washington's character right yeah. he's He's not a he is not a he's not a traditionally sympathetic character, nor is he as tradi- like as a traditional anti-hero either. And yet he manages to find this this emotion that makes you feel sympathy and disgust at the same time. And I think he does the same in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And uh, you know, and then to have this savvy, strong female protagonist that is misunderstood and yet quietly the backbone of the story, even if they sometimes feel shunted aside, like there's in, in those thematic elements in that talent that Wilson has and what he's kind of done with the backbone of the story, you could, you can start to sense a, like, ah, these might be some hallmarks, even though I haven't read or seen more of his plays yet. It's like, there's some, some commonalities here that are really strong. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that, um, for me, fences may have more universality, if that makes sense. I think that that you're absolutely right. The characters are so sharply drawn in both of these movies, but I could easily put myself um, 
very much in the shoes of the characters in Fences. It yeah. feels like when you're dealing with those family issues that that lie at the heart of that movie, it does feel very universal. This one, it takes more, it's more specific to a place and a time. And it and allows- an industry in a way. Yeah, and it and it allows you to really fall into that place in time and and understand, I think, a lot of elements to both the time that the movie takes place and and to to your point to our time. Um, it's also a little bit more of a downer, you know. I think that I think that fences ended on an enigmatic note. This Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is pure tragedy. I mean, it, it really is. It, it, you see a life destroyed in this movie. And you think about, you know, all the, the great Grecian dramas. Um, everybody had a fatal flaw. You can see the fatal flaw in the character who's destroyed here. Um, and that makes it really poignant. And it makes you think as, as a viewer if only things could have been different, if only things could have turned a slightly different way, this character could have been saved. He could have been redeemed. He could have found peace, but it, the, the movie just doesn't give you that. And so because of that, it's just, a, I think it's just a harder sell. Yeah. It's beyond the sort of niche factor that we talked about at the beginning. It does from an emotional standpoint and a little bit like we touched on with soul, there is less relatable in terms of the actual characters themselves and like their, who they are and where they are. You know, not many of us are music producers or blues, the mother of blues or playing in these bands for the mother of blues uh, and so although we can thematically find commonality and threads to relate and empathize with, you know, there's not that mirror the way there can be when you see the lower class, you know, struggling to be middle class working man and his, you know, faithful wife and the child they're proud of and the family drama they're de- in pain and tragedy they're dealing with. Like that is all stuff that we can much more easily as viewers place ourselves into because we've got situations that are much closer analogs that are uh, a lot that are, that are less uh, le- a lot less niche than the ones in Ma Rainey's black bottom. You know, it is interesting though, as we talk about both soul and Ma Rainey um, you find that, that it, like you were saying at the very top of this show, they are very, very, very different movies. And yet they both use music as sort of a conduit for part of the story that they're trying to say. I mean, there's this thread that goes through both that music is deeply important, that it transcends in some ways the, the everyday workaday life that we have. You know, I think Ma Rainey even, even says at some point that the blues fill life. You don't, you're never alone when you have the blues. And it's interesting that both of these movies really embrace that sense of music as being, um, you know, more than just a, a pretty tune. They It really talks about the primal importance of music. And I found that pretty interesting in both. And both, although, um, you know, they have very different audiences they're going for, sort of land for me in that I, I'm really glad I enjoyed this. But I'm curious to see when and where I find myself in a moment where I want to go back to it. 
you know, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, it is a dark, ultimately emotionally dark film and deservedly so well, well done. So, but it's not your typical, you know, it's not the kind of thing you're same with fences. You're not going to go back to it for popcorn viewing. Most likely. (laughs) That's really true. But I do think, I I think that this was one of my choices for our fantasy film team, right? I think that uh, Ma Rainey was, I believe that I made a pretty good choice when it came to the characters. I, I think that there could definitely be, you see some tour de force performances from both Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. And I think if you're going to watch this movie, you might be a little bit down in the mouth for <laughs> how the how the movie goes on. But man, the performances, which are a kind of music itself, um, are breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, you you certainly when you look at the history of just how Fences performed, Fences got um, nominated for three SAG awards and won two of them. It won a BAFTA. It was nominated for two Golden Globes and won one of them, and it was nominated for four Oscars and won one of them. And so, you know, that's a solid performance. And yeah. and that was at a time when. I don't know. Fences did feel appropriate for the time. I'm this one might feel even more appropriate for the time in its own way. Yep. I I would agree. So just out of curiosity, we've talked about both of these movies now. I I would guess my own opinion is that the big awards might go between three men, like best actor. I I think that, that you'd be talking about Gary Oldman in Mac Mank. You'd be talking about Chadwick Boseman here you'd be talking about anthony hopkins and the father which you have not seen we have not talked about it yet but but between bozeman and oldman from mank who do you think put in the best performance i i have to say uh it would be bozeman for me in that as i watched this movie there were times where i didn't recognize him as bozeman where I was lost in this being Levy and being the character. Um, and I didn't get that with Oldman in Mank. I thought he did a good job and it was very watchable and entertaining as Mank. But it was, it was as we've talked about with certain actors um, who do this more than others, I don't like, I haven't seen enough Oldman movies to say this in general about Oldman, but in this case, it was Gary Oldman as Mank. <laughs> and. And even though there were moments where it was Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman, especially up front, the more you watch this film, the more it's – this is Levy. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I would give it to Boseman. Well, and Boseman had a chance to have that show-stopping speech. One thing about August, August Wilson, he has some great speeches. And his uh, his monologue toward the end of that may just be enough to to earn him the Oscar. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, that's where you know it's like it feels like I'm get being given these organic moments to mention my 4K projector, but <laughs> on a hundred inches in 4K, seeing the twitching of you know the muscles in the corner of Bozeman's eyes, like these little subtle things, man, was good. It was good. Hmm. Interesting. So between Soul and uh, Ma Rainey, 
what do you what did you what would be the better movie for you as similar as these are it does it does still feel a lot like comparing apples and oranges <laughs> um, i can see myself rewatching soul a lot faster than rewatching ma rainey's black bottom and yet you know in terms of certain things i'm going to think about and ponder on both are both have it Ma Rainey's might be slightly more poignant because it's slightly more focused and uh, in its in its approach than than Pete Doctor trying to tackle all of life and its meaning and purpose <laughs> and spark. And so for that reason, you know, it feels like it edges Soul out a bit there, even if Soul itself is more rewatchable. Yep, I I hear that. I hear that. I, I think for me, I know I know that that Soul will be on my top 10 um for the end of the year i'm not quite so sure about mon rainy but we'll see and with that i'm not sure if someone's knocking on my door or my ceiling my kids have been plundering like elephants through the house um but as i go to check on my door i'll kick you all to the transition for the most least important thing At last, we've arrived at the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single show of ours, turning the juggernauts of pop culture into tiny, insignificant pieces of dust, and taking pieces of dust and turning them into Frankenstein's monster, should we so choose. It's the most least important thing. It's whatever we want it to be. (laughs) Exactly. That's what makes it our favorite segment. We can make whatever we want. That's right. And speaking of things being completely different and whatever I want it to be. Brain fart. <laughs> did you just did you just want silence? Is that Oh my goodness, no. Just uh brain farts. All right. <laughs> It was like, what? A, and it's gone. I mean, it was literally that that was probably my favorite moment in Seoul where <laughs> they come into the place where, you know, when people get in the zone, this is the zone. And then she like pegs the people with like the sand balls and oh. they leave the zone. That was, I was like, yeah. How many times have I felt that? Yeah. I love that. I love that. I, I love the next joke too. That, yeah, that I was so good. With this team for the longest time. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And the Knicks lose again. <laughs> uh, all right. I wanted to talk a minute about what has quickly become my new favorite reality TV show. The NBA. <laughs> 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 I had this epiphany today, actually, as I was perusing different headlines and I came across different talking points in this newly minted 2020-2021 season that we're just like two or three games into now. And was just chuckling over different faux pas, including the one that I'll be mentioning here for the most least important thing. But I had the realization that, man, the NBA... I don't, I like watching the games. 
but I don't know that I like watching the games as much as I like sort of the background noise of all the drama and the reality TV show-esque dynamics that we have in the modern NBA. You know, different player beefs. Uh, you have your coaches and general managers getting into all sorts of drama. You have the league trying to do ridiculous things like today's example, fining the president of the Philadelphia 76ers $50,000 for tampering. And do you know, do you know what his, what they cited as the evidence of tampering for which they fined him $50,000? I have no idea. A tweet wherein he congratulated James Harden for something that he, like on the anniversary of something that James Harden did last year. Uh, James Harden being a basketball player on the team, the Houston Rockets that Daryl Morey used to work for, but now he works for a different team. And so now because he congratulated James Harden in a tweet for something he did a year ago, he's lost $50,000 for tampering. Right. And James Harden wants out of Houston, right? I mean, that's sort of the, he is ready to go. And so he's a huge basketball player. So lots of people are trying to get him to come there, right? Right. Let me just, I, I, I'm speechless. I'm totally, <laughs> because, I mean, isn't that sort of what people do if they're wooing free agents? Isn't that, isn't that okay? Even if he, even if the, the NBA is totally right, that it wasn't sincere at all, that it was some sort of plea to get James Harden to go to the 76ers, does, isn't that okay? Right. Even if. Even, like that's where I don't I, – I can understand where you need some rules when it comes to tampering and sabotage and stuff like that. But yeah, look at someone a car. Yeah. But, but even that in the NBA where you're throwing around millions of dollars and options and contracts and, hey, come, we've got the biggest market or whatever. We've got the best players. The I don't understand this, hey, it's not okay for somebody to tweet at or to to – to ever mention offhand in a radio interview, you know, this it's like you're in the NBA hundreds of millions of dollars are being swapped every year for these players. Like, I think that tweet is going to mean a whole lot less than a contract (laughs) that's worth $175 million over five years. Like just the decision. And that's what to me makes it feel very reality TV show like, right? Is that you have all this massive drama over little nothingness as tens and hundreds of millions of dollars are being thrown yeah. about like candy. It it seems a little like, and not that anybody can, can do this anymore because of COVID, but it feels a little like finding someone $50,000 for hugging someone. You know, if someone, you meet an old friend, you go up there and you just give him a nice pat on the shoulder that's fifty thousand dollars that you poured that you are because you know this guy is looking for free agency. You might want him on your team, and so you just can't do that. Right? That doesn't seem right. Well, and just what within the last two years, we had Magic Johnson, one of the faces of the NBA for many many years, who left a high powered position at the Los and for the with the Los Angeles Lakers. And according to him, at least, no small part due to the fact that he was tired of the fact that he couldn't mention, you know, players that he liked. He couldn't tell them good game. He couldn't text them and say, add a boy. And he was like, 
I, I just can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm sure there were other factors, but that was one of the big ones he named publicly. That is crazy. That is crazy. The NBA has lost its mind. Crazy. Like, crazy. But entertaining reality television, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Speaking of companies that sometimes make questionable decisions, what do you think about the DC Extended Universe? Like they got some extension cords and they're going to plug it in or I actually don't know anything about the DC extended universe, Paul. You, I, oh my goodness. So the DC extended universe is, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the weekend that soul came out, wonder woman, 1984 also came out that we may or may not talk on about on a future episode. Um, but wonder woman is of course, part of the DC extended universe. Oh, I just thought it was called the DC universe. I didn't know they had an E in there. Well, see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Some people would say that the original DC universe film universe was a little bit sketchy, like Mm -hmm. a little bit uneven justice league. Not very good. Yeah. Batman V Superman really bad. Suicide squad. Really, really bad. So DC has come up with a new plan. They have decided to do two extended universes. Oh. Yes. So now you have the DC extended universe and the DC films multiverse. Oh, okay. They are planning to release six films every single year. Single year. So just to let you know, the DC Extended Universe, that's what Wonder Woman's a part of. Aquaman, all those things where they might show up in Justice League sometime. That's going to be the Extended Universe. The DC Films Multiverse is movies like Joker, Uh the upcoming Batman movie. Things that might not fit into canon, but still would make pretty good movies. So... Gotcha. So I don't know if uh, if more is necessarily better in DC's case. I mean, I think that that for me, the films have been sort of uneven as time has gone on. Um, but I guess we'll see. We shall see whether they succeed better at these uh, extended universes than the NBA succeeds in tampering. That's right. Well, it's it's always an interesting thing when you try to give yourself more flexibility and create these extra categories or buckets to put stuff in. And it can go, usually it can go one of two ways when you do that. And it can be helpful, which obviously they're hoping for, or it can just be needlessly confusing, which (laughs) given the history of DC films seems to be more kind of what they might fall into if we're less optimistic about, their uh strategic decision making yeah yeah i would say that that is true and because i mean you had me confused right away like (laughs) what's the difference what's the difference between extended and multiverse like that's going to get confused all the time and the nerds will know but what the general public isn't going to care so you know just as a final note to this most least important thing segment can I just say that I'm surprised neither of us brought Mark Hamill to the table? Mm. You can say that, but why? Have you seen the last episode of The Mandalorian? 
I have, but I was kind of like saving that in case we were going to do, you know, our Mandalorian <laughs> season two yeah. recap. We really do need to do a Mandalorian season two recap. There's a lot honest. to unpack. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot to unpack. And I think that it, from what I gathered in a previous podcast, we may have very wildly different opinions on this particular season. It's very possible. Hmm. But uh, you guys are going to have to find out at another time. Because <laughs> I've already kept Paul past time. His contract, he can just bail. He can just walk out right now. See you, Jake. <laughs> uh, if you want to catch up with us in the meantime, let us know your own Mark Hamill thoughts. We are on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But until next time, we'll catch you on the flip side. Bye. Bye. <laughs>